Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. I'm J.F. Martel. Flannery O'Connor was born in Savannah, Georgia in 1925. During her short life, she died of lupus at the age of 39. She wrote dozens of short stories and also two novels, the first of which was Wise Blood, the book we're discussing today. Though written early in O'Connor's career, Wise Blood packs all the strangeness that her short fiction is known for. It was all there from the start menageries of so-called grotesque characters, the cross-contamination of reason with dream logic, the ubiquity of senseless and almost random violence, and most important for us, that pervasive ambiance of weirdness whose source the reader can never quite pinpoint. O'Connor didn't need fantastical tropes to evoke the weird because in her world, everything was weird already. Everything was already supernatural. Her Roman Catholic viewpoint and her lifelong struggle with a debilitating illness gave her a unique perspective, one that made her keenly aware of what we might call the intrinsic monstrosity of the world. Wise Blood is the story of Hazel Motes, a preacher's son who travels to the fictional city of Tockenham, Tennessee, to spread the gospel of what he calls the Church Without Christ. In our conversation, Phil and I interpret the novel as a kind of descent into hell, a journey into the dreamscape that opens up to those who take seriously the modernist claim that the world has neither meaning nor purpose. What Hazel Motes finds there is difficult to put into words, and maybe the tortuousness of our conversation has to do with this difficulty. Suffice it to say that for Flannery O'Connor, Christ isn't always a loving, human-faced savior. He can also manifest as a predatory beast lurking among the trees, stalking her every move, a monster as terrible as anything dreamed up by H.P. Lovecraft. Before we get going, I'll just say a couple of words about the Weird Studies Patreon. Weird Studies is a bi-weekly podcast. Every off-week, Phil and I release exclusive material for our Patreon supporters. They include new writings, book and movie recommendations, bonus and expanded episodes, and so on. Visit our Patreon page to know more about becoming a Weird Studies patron. But whether or not you make that move, we'd love to hear from you. So if you have thoughts, questions, ideas, whatever, send us a note. Our email address is admin at weirdstudies.com. We read and try to respond to everything we get. Okay, now on to Wise Blood by Flannery O'Connor. We hope you enjoy our conversation. So 
somehow having this injured eye is like, it's just very distracting. Do you want to share you know, the news about your eye? It's doing well. It's not, you're not actually going blind or anything, but you no. are wearing, as we record, you are wearing a pair of shades to protect your eyes from the light. And mm -hmm. this look you have is oddly reminiscent of, what's his name? The preacher. Yeah. What's his name again? Moats. Hazel Moats. The blind preacher. Oh, that guy. Asa Hawks. Yeah. Um, is that how you pronounce that name? Asa or Asa? Sure, sure. Why not? Yeah. Asa. And actually the figure of eyes and, and, and like dark wells, dark empty wells for eyes is a prominent motif in this novel. Okay. So Asa Hawks is a fake preacher. He's a phony, uh, a mountebank who wears dark glasses and his cheeks are streaked with scars from lie, where at a revival meeting, he announced that he would blind himself for Jesus. But then the thing is that he never actually went through with it. He could only bring himself to put the lie on his cheeks, not in his eyes. Uh, and eventually Hazel Motes manages to accomplish what he did not, blinds yeah. himself. And so his eyes are just like empty sockets. Yeah. And uh, the last, the very, I think the, what's the last sentence it's just like the his landlady he's dead and his landlady doesn't realize that he's dead and is just staring into these empty sockets and it's sort of ambiguous but it's as if she can see a light in the depths in fact it's it's even stranger she it says she sat staring with her eyes shut into his eyes and felt as if she had finally got to the beginning of something she couldn't begin and she saw him move farther and farther away, farther and farther into the darkness until he was the pinpoint of light. It's, so she's not even... Not even actually looking. It's with these other eyes yeah. that the novel hints at. The, the, the theme of vision is uh, very important here. Um, so, so, so what we're saying, I guess, is it's a minor synchronicity that I happen to be half-blinded the week that we're recording this and wearing dark glasses like I'm an itinerant preacher. Huh. Who, blind, who who fake blinded himself for Jesus. It is a strange co coincidence, don't you think? Yeah, it is, actually. Yeah. Yeah, it hadn't, hadn't occurred to me, but that kind of thing seems to happen a lot in the vicinity of weird studies. Not just for us, but like for, you know, we hear, we hear from our listeners telling us about odd coincidences or synchronicities that happen in the vicinity of our show. My friend Tim was visiting this weekend, uh, and he has the best story. I don't remember if I ever told it on this show. Uh, he, he lives out in the country in this um, cottage and he has a little hook, like a, not a hook, but just a nail banged into the wall where he hangs things like, like cloth bags for buying groceries. And uh, so, you know, one day he hung up his, his cloth bag just as usual. And he was listening to an episode of Weird Studies that had to do with like anomalous things. Oh, it was the thing where we were talking about like Philip K. Dick's experience of finding the light switch like in the wrong place. And it's just sort of like, but it was in a different place, but reality somehow had shifted around and there'd been a glitch in the matrix or something. And the light switch ended up on the other side. And you said that that very thing had happened to you. Yeah. And then after listening to that episode, Tim got up and wanted to get his bag down and it wouldn't come. It was like stuck. He was pulling at it. And then he looked closer and the nail had been driven right through the canvas handle of the bag into the wall. And he called up people who he knew who might possibly have maybe come over while he wasn't around or something and fucked with them. 
And everyone's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> He's trying to figure out how this might possibly happen. But somehow, impossibly, this bag ended up nailed to the wall. Weird, eh? That is so weird. And, and you know, this is just one example among many of people who've written us with weird coincidences happening around the show. I, I really don't know what to make of that. Um, and then the, this would be the latest. Uh, you're being half blinded the week we're recording a show about a book that really deals with vision and blindness and all that. So it, it didn't occur to me until you made the joke about how I look like an itinerant preacher. Right. And I was like, oh, wait, shit. Yeah. Let's. I, I was sure that you were just joking and you were wearing those shades to be like the preacher. <laughs> and, <laughs> but nope. let's just let's just like considering this has happened, let's never do an episode on deliverance. <laughs> yeah. Oh god, now I'm going to be paranoid like every time we do anything, I'm going to like go through it to make sure that nobody gets their eyes injured right. or like any other particularly unpleasant things. So we'll just end up reading George and Martha or like, you know, just really nice kids books where nothing bad ever happens to anybody. Yeah. I was going to say Roald Dahl, but that would be, no, there's no way we no, could read that. No, no. <laughs> Actually, though, I will say George and Martha, do you know the George and Martha stories? I'm not very well versed in children's English children's lit. I was never, so now I've been learning a lot about this stuff uh, with my kids. Um, uh, I didn't even know about Roald Dahl really before. Really? Yeah. Before I had oh, kids. I, so. I, I really encourage you to look into the George and Martha stories. I love them. They're so good. There's something magical about the illustrations, which are very simple, but have a tremendous amount of sly humor and just the little stories are like the tiny little stories. Like every word is perfectly chosen. Right. Uh, and there's a sort of a dry wit uh, that at the same time isn't that bullshit thing that bad children's book writers do where they're like, nudge, wink, parent. Yeah. He doesn't do that. The whimsy and uh, the dry humor of it is funny as shit. There's a sweetness to it, but at the same time, some nice tart, vinegary uh, little moments as well. I think there's a lot of astringent parts to Wise Blood. But um, yes. uh, last night I started watching John Huston's uh, adaptation of it, 1979. Um, and he really tried to bring out the comedy part of the book. I think I, I, my feeling is that Flannery O'Connor thought this book was absolutely hilarious. She just thought it was a, a real hoot, this book. Oh, there's so many laugh out loud lines. Like really this. kind of um, slapstick comedy and that sort of thing, or just really ironic funny parts but um john houston's john houston's film uses a kind of like uh endearing country soundtrack and a bluegrassy soundtrack and it's very um sentimental i was hmm. so shocked by that i couldn't actually watch because this book for me is as dark as as it gets um, yeah and even though she calls it a comic novel did you read her note to the second edition at the beginning? Oh, yeah. I love that. Yeah. It's great. I've wanted to talk about it. Let's let's read it first and then um, start there, maybe. Can I, can I just give two very brief examples of lines that maybe laugh out loud? Sure. Somebody refers to someone else as a goddamn Jesus hog. Yeah. <laughs> that yeah. And, and then a reference to a cat-faced baby, which is like a perfect figure of this sort of grotesque imagination 
what a what a fucking weird detail and yeah. funny like it conjures a funny image that cat face baby uh passage is interesting because i think it fits into a, a kind of light motif that runs through the book where she's constantly um comparing uh humans to animals or inanimate objects mm. um we can get to that uh but she also has these very, very uh, precise and observations of things that, that I've experienced but could never put into words. For example, at one point, Hazel Motes, the main character, is trying to get to sleep in a berth in a train car. She writes, there was something in his throat like a sponge with an egg taste. He oh, that was so good. He didn't want to turn over for fear it would move. I just... <laughs> What the fuck? <laughs> I know. I, so I'm good. like. I know what you're talking about. I've experienced that. <laughs> yeah. It's one thing to think of of that, to actually have an experience like that, and then to remember it enough to put it in your book. It's another way. It's another thing to find the words to describe it, so that some dude, you know, fifty years oh. down the road, goes, "Yes, that thing. <laughs> I hate that. The egg taste. The sponge. The eggy." sponge in my throat yeah but yeah i was oh, gonna and I, and I mean it's just like we could probably spend the entire show God, yeah. finding favorite descriptions uh the one i really wanted to mention in this one is thematically apposite and it even sets up the novel a little bit because she mentions it in fact she quotes herself in that right uh introductory note to the second edition um this is right at the beginning where is talking about Hazel Motes, the main character. Later, he saw Jesus move from tree to tree in the back of his mind, a wild, ragged figure motioning him to turn around and come off into the dark where he was not sure of his footing, where he might be walking on the water and not know it, and then suddenly know it and drown. Right. The yeah. ragged figure moving from tree to tree. Yeah. And... It Again, the, the levels here are insane because the ragged figure, a wild ragged figure moving from tree to tree reminds me of exactly where Enoch, the other character, ends up, which is wandering around in the wilderness in a gorilla suit, watching people. Oh, um, shit. Yeah. It's very strange. Um, but uh, let's, just, let's just start with, because I think the author's note frames the book in a useful way. Because uh, one thing about Flannery O'Connor who wrote this in the, this book was published in 1952. Um, she was then a young, uh, aspiring writer. I believe that she had gotten maybe a few stories published at that point. And she was a very devout Catholic. It's always front and center with Flannery O'Connor. Almost every edition of her book will have some Catholic symbol on it to remind you that she's a Catholic writer and she's writing from a Catholic place. But of course, what Catholic means when you read Flannery O'Connor becomes very strange and ambiguous. Mm. Um, a little bit like Graham Greene that way. I don't know if you've read Graham Greene's uh, so-called Catholic novels, but... Um, Never the, have. Yeah. It's the type of thing that it's not the, you know, when you hear a Christian novel, you think of like supermarket kind of genre novels. Yeah. Like Left Behind or something. Right. Um, but these are highly, very literary, very ambiguous, very strange books. And it doesn't do them justice to reduce them to, you know, a kind of religious ideological standpoint. That's not where they're coming from. These particular writers, at least, that's not where they're coming from. But uh, Flannery O'Connor did think that this was important. In fact, she thought that was the only thing that was important. So when the second edition was published, she wrote the following note at the beginning. Wise blood has reached the age of 10 and is still alive. 
My critical powers are just sufficient to determine this, and I am gratified to be able to say it. The book was written with zest, and if possible, it should be read that way. It is a comic novel about a Christian malgré lui, and as such, very serious, for all comic novels that are any good must be about matters of life and death. Wiseblood was written by an author congenitally innocent of theory, but one with certain preoccupations. That belief in Christ is to some a matter of life and death has been a stumbling block for readers who would prefer to think it a matter of no great consequence. For them, Hazel Motes's integrity lies in his trying with such vigor to get rid of the ragged figure who moves from tree to tree in the back of his mind. For the author, Hazel's integrity lies in his not being able to. Does one's integrity ever lie in what he is not able to do? I think that usually it does, for free will does not mean one will, but many wills conflicting in one man. Freedom cannot be conceived simply. It is a mystery, and one which a novel, even a comic novel, can only be asked to deepen. Yeah, that's terrific. It's a novel about faith. It's a novel about God. It's a novel about the nature of the universe. It's, it's, uh, it really is one of those books where the little town where it takes place, uh, Talkingham, Talkingham, Tennessee, which I don't think exists. Um, no. Uh, is, uh, becomes a microcosm of the whole fucking universe. And mm -hmm. in this dramatic space, she's going to let the forces of good and evil clash. And you're, you're, it's a very epic book in that sense. And really, I mean, the real battleground is the main character himself, Hazel Motes, who is this preacher's son, or at least his grandfather was a preacher. And he wants to be a preacher, but he wants to preach atheism. He wants to preach nihilism. He wants to preach what he calls the church without Christ. And he goes to the city to do that. Um, but he's constantly, he's like one of those Jesus haunted characters who just can't get rid of this sense of the sacred. And he's trying to dispel it or to um, reject it. But the more he tries, the more tangled up he gets in the contradictions that are involved yeah. in that. And, um, and he so, keeps getting, yeah. he keeps getting tied up in knots that are never, the Nate, the, the nature of the knot is never fully explained. It's like it's not like there's some clear logic by which he finds himself in some catch-22 or some contradictory situation. The contradictory or impossible nature of the situation is handled Im imagistically. So, for example, early on, he arrives in Talkingham, and the first thing he needs to do is find a place to sleep. And he sees the number of a prostitute scrawled on a bathroom wall, and he yeah. decides he's just going to go and be with her and he's never slept with a woman before and so he to kill two birds with one stone find a place to sleep and divest himself of his uh, sexual innocence um, and this is part of his whole thing that he hates the idea of purity and sin right. and he and he insists in his preachments uh, of the church without Christ that everybody is born pure uh, that no one needs Jesus's redemption uh, and he, he tries to, I mean, clearly he's trying to sort of abase himself. Uh, he's trying to dive headlong into the sin that he's supposed to avoid, in which we're informed he has very successfully managed to avoid during his tour of military duty. 
Yes. But he's that everybody sort of thought of him as the Holy Joe of the platoon, the guy who would never go out with the other guys to the cat houses. And yet it kind of doesn't work out because like the woman takes him in with, without any problem, but he leaves after she vandalizes his hat. Right. And the hat itself is an interesting uh, like he does, symbol. He does sleep with her, though. Oh, he does. Yeah. yeah but yeah. he doesn't stick with it. You know, he, he no. can't stick with it because right, right. he's got this hat that he buys almost by accident. And he buys it in order to, I suppose, to affect a sort of jaunty and rakish appearance. But everybody mistakes it for a preacher's hat. And, and there's a, even there, there's a contradiction. So this is I think your point is very important, is that this is not a book where you can break down the conflicting forces very easily. Every take you can get on it just raises more questions. So for yeah. instance, he explicitly says he will be a preacher and he is mm -hmm. going to preach, but he's insulted when people call him, say that he looks like a preacher. That's right. If you want a case study in narcissism, this book would be it. I'm not, I don't mean that to, to diminish the character, but I think he truly is someone who's um, self-questioning has reached the point where he can't even see other people anymore, except as figures in his own personal drama that he's living out. So he's constantly carrying out conversations with multiple characters through time. Like he'll, he'll continue a conversation that was left unfinished with the next person he meets as though that person knew what he was talking about. So mm -hmm. if someone accuses him of looking like a preacher, he's like, I'm not, I ain't no preacher. And then he leaves. And the next person he sees like, I ain't no preacher. He's like <laughs> trying to convince that person. <laughs> it's like he's trying to convince himself of the, that. And, and the thing about sin is, yes, he tries to dive headlong into sin. But then he realizes that by doing that, he's actually affirming Christ because he's affirming sin. He, if he, yeah. it, it, he has to find a way to let go of the very idea of sin. There's a moment where he was planning to seduce this girl, Sabbath Lily, and she is now trying to seduce him. But he's kind of given up. He doesn't that plan. want to anymore. Doesn't want to anymore yeah. because he just learned that she was a bastard. That her dad, who was a preacher, actually um, had her out of wedlock. So then he's thinking, can a bastard be part of the church without Christ, my church? And he's like, of course, bastards are welcome. But then he thinks, no, they can't be. Because if I welcome bastards, then I'm affirming the category. So I have to say yeah. that bastards don't exist in the church without Christ, which to Flannery O'Connor at the time, I think seems absurd because bastards do exist. In order to live without a sense of sin, you have to eliminate entire categories, which you can't really live without, is what I think she's trying to get at. There's a really big question here. It's so big, I kind of, I, I hesitate to bring it up. But I think we have to say, who is Jesus? Um, it's so funny that you bring this up, because I think what you get from reading this book is that the word Jesus doesn't mean what we think it means. And it occurred to me the other day, a certain, there's a certain kind of believer, let's call him the, a mystical believer, who uses the same language as a literalist Christian or a literalist devout, devotee of any religion. But when they use the words, they don't mean the same thing. So when you're reading Christ, like in her note, she says that belief in Christ is to some a matter of life and death. What she means by Christ isn't quite clear once you've finished reading this book. Mm. Is she really talking about the guy who lived 2,000 mm -hmm. years ago and was crucified? Well, yeah, she, partly, but that's not all she means. Uh, being a fan of Flannery O'Connor, I read a, bi a biography of hers. At least it's, it's like a four-part biography by Paul Eli called uh, 
the life you save may be your own. It's actually four part in the sense that it's about four Catholic American writers, uh, one of whom is Flannery O'Connor. And in this book, um, he shows how interested she was in things like Théal de Chardin, right? She was really mm-hmm. interested in theologies that really tried to um, turn Christ into a cosmic principle instead of mm. just uh, maintaining a kind of literalist historical stand. Like that becomes just yeah. an analogy of something that's much more cosmic. And yeah. I think that's what's going on in this book. Yeah. And Philip K. Dick does something similar and, you know, Christ becomes the plasmate. Right. You know, like living information or whatever. It's well, like I the, mean, St. John did it with, uh, I mean, John the Evangelist with uh, the Logos, mm-hmm. the, the word mm-hmm. became flesh. This is yeah. baked into the to the text from the beginning that what we see in history is a kind of analogy of something that's going on on another level. So when you say Christ, is that what you're thinking? The That Christ as like a principle more than a man? I think principle is probably the wrong word. Is yeah, that what but, I personally think? But something think? more abstract than like a guy. Yeah. I'm, Just, I'm wondering, no, not necessarily what you personally believe, but like for the purposes of this conversation, because, right. because I get the sense that you're trying to drive at a really interesting distinction, which is between Jesus and Christ. Yes. If and I it, understand, yeah. if I understand you right, it's like Christ is the plasmate. Christ is the whatever Tehar de Chardin thought Christ was this kind of cosmic principle or whatever, but Christ is more than a man, that Christ doesn't have to have ever existed as a human being in order to be Christ. But Jesus is a, is a human entity. Like Christ emphasizes the word and Jesus emphasizes the made flesh part. You know what I'm saying? Right. If you're a polytheist and you have like Votan or Demeter or Astarte or, or whomever on your altar, they're, you know, principles or whatever, but they're also individual entities that take some kind of fleshy form. I mean, you know, as, as maybe polychrome statue or whatever, but nevertheless, their material presence, there's something material about them, not material exactly, but maybe flesh is actually a better term than material because material assumes some kind of ontological status, whereas flesh is uh, perhaps a little vaguer. A little bit phenomenological, yeah, a little bit yeah. experiential, yeah. But like you can experience a god, uh, I don't know, like Votan, for example, but I don't know if you can experience Christ in the same way. But you can experience Jesus. Like Jesus has a a personality, a character. Like if you set about, if you're, if you set about, like I am going to pray to Jesus, and I'm going to seek to let Jesus into my heart, and I'm going to seek to know Jesus. You can do that, and you can you can get a sense of like who Jesus was as a. I won't say he's a human being, but like as an entity, right? Right. right. You you can do entity work with Jesus. You can't just do entity work with Christ. 
You know what I'm saying? That's the distinct, that's the distinction I'm kind of going for here. And keep in mind, I'm speaking in almost complete innocence of Christian theology. I am uh, ignorant, pig ignorant of Christian theology, but that's at least a thought that's in my head. What do you, what do you make of all that? I I think you're right, but I think the two, theologically, the two terms are inseparable, which is why we say Jesus Christ, because you, like, Jesus is a man, but he is man consubstantial with the law with sure. God, and sure. that and that consubstantiality is itself the logos. The incarnation happens in history to us in the year zero or whatever, but it happens cosmically as the act of creation itself. The incarnation is creation itself. It's a little bit like it's very close to what's happening in Buddhism. I think if you really break it down, the word Buddha in Buddhism. Uh, refers both to the individual, Gautama, Buddha, who attain, achieves enlightenment, and it also refers to Buddha nature. Or yeah, the, no, it's yeah. quite true. It's, it's, you're, you're absolutely right. Right. But you know, the Buddha just did not live that interesting a life. And I say this as a Buddhist, sorry, no offense to other he, Buddhists who are he, listening to this. He died of indigestion. Yeah. <laughs> like, like Richard Wagner wanted for years to write an opera about the Buddha. Uh, He had sketches for it. It was going to be called The Victors. And he just gave up because he's like, it's just not dramatic. It's not an interesting story. Hmm. The the opera that he ended up writing uh, that sort of did the work that he wanted The Victors to do uh, was Parsifal which is a figure from Arthurian mythos and a Christian figure, but also allowed him to work in a lot of the stuff that he would have worked into his, you know, Buddha opera. But the point is like, you know, there's something about like the story of Jesus. It's a crazy story. It's a crazy story. Yeah. And Jesus cuts a figure. So I guess what I'm trying to say, this is the Jesus who kicked people's asses in the temple. Right. This is a Jesus that did various miracles, that raised Lazarus from the dead, that, you know, this is a Jesus that had a temper. This is a Jesus that showed mercy. This is a human being. Right. And that's that's the one thing that really distinguishes the, the Christian scriptures for me is the uh, incredible verisimilitude of the characterizations in there. Uh, when you compare that to, you know, a lot of people have said that, oh, it was it was a toss-up between Mithraism or Christianity, which religion would take take over uh, in Rome. And Mithras had a very similar story, but the story of Mithras is is a hundred percent myth, whereas the story of Jesus, strangely, was from the beginning. It was important that it was a historical story, that this is something that happened. Um, so, and and the story is written in such a way that it feels like the character is, he's hard to pin down. And the idea of Jesus that we have now, the kind of pop culture um, icon of Jesus as this kind of hippie. The hippie um, in a nightgown. Yeah, is, um, <laughs> I mean, you can't read the actual text and come up with that image at all. It's impossible unless you're not really reading. Uh, the character is incredibly conflicted and conflicting um, and very strange. And um, and I think that strangeness is something that these Catholic writers like um, Flannery O'Connor found very important. The strangeness of Christ yep. is, is a thing that's kind of 
key here. Um, because well, and that's why to, I wanted yeah. to bring it up and say, who is Jesus? Because I don't think you can really quite get the flavor, the grotesque, weird flavor of this novel without understanding that much of it comes from that ragged figure moving from tree to tree. It matters that the only person who says Christ very often is, in fact, Hazel Motes, who's this very idealistic, I mean, in a sense, intellectual mm -hmm. or intellectualist figure. But everybody else, they talk about Jesus. And there's this sort of like um, Jesus haunted reality. I mean, the Southern Gothic that uh, mm. that, um, that, that O'Connor is working within is a, is a Jesus haunted world. And right. I don't think you can kind of get the flavor of that world without understanding. It's like Jesus is something akin to a ghost. Yeah. Something like a, like a, like an actual, like a poltergeist that's fucking with people and, and that they can't escape and they can't leave alone. Like Jesus is personal. And, you know, maybe this comes from, you know, uh, Southern evangelical Protestantism with this emphasis on having a personal relationship with Jesus. I mean, this is so banal and we, you know, we educated moderns, you know, roll our eyes at that. But like, think about how weird that is to have a personal relationship with Jesus. And what kind of, what kind of city would be a city of people for whom Jesus is like this, this poltergeist, this, this restless spirit, this nagging entity that won't fucking leave them alone. She was a Catholic, a Roman Catholic in the South, where Roman Catholics are a, an important minority. And, you know, the kind of air you breathe in the South was this Protestant flavor of Christianity. And a lot of those people really didn't like the Roman Catholics, right? Um, it's like, uh, it's almost like in her vision, Protestantism has uh, let the genie out of the bag. And now Jesus is this, as you say, this poltergeist haunting everyone. He's not contained anymore. He is become a kind of monster. I'm assuming that as a Catholic, she believed that Jesus needed to be contained in a tradition so that he doesn't do precisely this destructive work that he's done. The he being the figure, the idea of it in the South where, I mean, there's one point where Hazel Motes uh, uh, meets this guy who decides to try to help him out and, and, and expand his church and help him promote it. And this guy starts to preach for Hazel in his place. And he starts to interpret, you know, what Hazel is saying. He's saying, oh, the prophet here, what he means is this. Yeah, he refers to Hazel as the prophet. Right. And, and just it just takes upon himself without asking first, just takes upon the responsibility of being his apostle. And so Hazel is like a pretty inept preacher. Yeah. Nobody listens to him and nobody understands what the fuck he's talking about. He's too, this yeah, one, he's too philosophical um, and he, he doesn't know how to get people to where he's thinking. He's just giving them the conclusions, but they can't get there on their own. So this guy's trying to help him out. But what he ends up doing is completely distorting what Hazel Motes wants to preach, which is a kind of absolute atheist nihilism. 
But this guy, he spins it in a way that all of a sudden feels appealing to people. And what he says is, now, friends, I want to tell you a second reason why you can absolutely trust this church. It's based on the Bible. Yes, sir. It's based on your own personal interpretation of the Bible, friends. You can sit at home and interpret your own Bible however you feel in your heart. It ought to be interpreted. That's right. Just the way Jesus would have done it. <laughs> this is kind of a jab at the Protestant doctrine of sola scriptura, which means that by scripture alone, you're saved so that every Christian has a duty to read the text and interpret it. And usually in order to, you know, the Protestant default is to interpret it literally, at least in some Protestant denominations, many of which are powerful in the South. And the other thing that this guy is doing is he's spinning it so that what Hazel Moses is actually trying to do is to connect people to that little rose of sweetness in their heart. Like basically he's saying we're all innocent deep down and um, a church should help us rediscover our inner child, our inner innocence. It it's kind of is what Hazel Moses is saying because he's saying there's no redemption. You're already clean to people. Yeah. But he doesn't, when he hears that, he rejects it because he realizes that he can't let go of the idea of sin. He's still stuck in the whole dialectic of Christianity. He can't accept this kind of new age take on it, which this other dude trying to help is offering people. It's kind of interesting. Yeah. The, the, um, the detail of uh, the, the apostle, what's his name? He's got some typically uh, on, grotesque, weird name. Ani J. Holy is his false name, and his, his real name is Hoover Schultz. Hoover Schultz. What right. a great name. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he keeps saying, like, I wish I had my guitar here, because I just somehow can say sweet things to music, better and plain. And when you talk about Jesus, you need a little music, don't you, friends? And that's an example of his patter. But I thought it was interesting, too, because this is, like, also a figure of, like, what Hazel Motes is lacking, it lacks music. Right. You know? And this other guy, it's kind of interesting. This other guy is able to attract an audience, even though he's not quite on the level. He's a bit of a huckster himself. But even without his guitar, he finds a kind of a sweetness. Like, you're right. He, his uh, rather clumsy paraphrase or rephrasing mm -hmm. of Hazel Moe's message is in a way faithful to it. But with a lot more sweetness to it, it's something that people can relate to, right? But right. Moats just won't have it. No, because he doesn't you know? really believe it. And this is, um, this opens up another uh, dimension, which is like, okay, so, you know, you're reading this as uh, a Catholic's response to the idea of sola scriptura. Well, in part, I'm not saying that's in all. In part, that. I know, yeah. you're not reducing the novel to that uh, to, to that meaning alone. But, you know, the way I tended to read this was as a very funny parody of uh, the modern. You know, I keep thinking that what Hazel Motes wants to establish is a church of the modern. He does. And in our first episode with Jeff Kripal, he said, you know, the if you want to know, like, the fundamental truth from which all academic discourse uh, proceeds, it is that if something is depressing, it is most likely to be true. Or the more depressing something it is, the more likely it is to be true. And that's kind of a joke, but it's also, I think, an articulation of a fundamental aspect of modern thought. Like, one thing that you and I have talked about off mic a number of times is the way that the modern, the modern dispensation, modern habits of thought always proceed from parsimony. So whatever is the stingiest possible interpretation is held a priori to be the most 
likely one. And so this is something that takes the music out of everything. You know, think about the idea that we live in a fundamentally meaningless universe, that we're meat robots lumbering over the surface of a dead rock spinning idly in an empty void. You know, that kind of idea, beloved of the kind of Reddit atheist types and is in a way the perfect representation of that parsimony. Well, let's just keep editing the universe. You know, more and more of it, we're going to lop away more of the meaning, more of the sweetness of it, more of the stuff that makes it feel like this is a universe that we can actually live in, that we're at home in. Um, That's Hazel Moat's move. Yeah. And when he encounters somebody who wants to help him out, but just add a little bit of sweetness, make this, you know, this somewhat hair shirted doctrine a little easier to live in, something a little bit more comfortable. Hazel Mose isn't having it. He doesn't want music. He doesn't want music in his message. He just wants the message. Right. The reason he rejects uh, Ani J. Holy's uh, take on it, though, is because he feels it to be false. And the, the, I mean, what Hazel Motz is doing is actually, it, you know, I agree with you that modernism tends to always go for the depressing answer. But that depressing answer can be really liberating for someone who lives with religious guilt. <laughs> with too much meaning. Yeah. Um, yeah, so true. Hazel is, when he's a kid, he goes to a carnival and he sees something that kind of shocks him there. He, um, he, he goes to a carnival and he, he sneaks his way into a tent where there's a sideshow and the sideshow is a naked woman lying in a coffin. And afterwards, his mother um, can tell that he's done something wrong and gives him a beating. And then as she's beating him, she writes that his specific guilt related to what had just happened disappears. And what comes up is this ambient, bottomless guilt that constitutes him, that that makes Mm. him who he is. And it's that guilt he's trying to get rid of. Um, And that's why when (laughs) Oni J. Holy talks about how deep down we're all just a little rose of sweetness that we were born as. And we have to just remember that we're all this little rose of sweetness. uh, He can't accept it because... This would not square with the guilt that he somehow wants to maintain in the Church of Without Christ. I mean, Paul Eli in his book, uh, The Life You Save May Be Your Own, actually assembles the various parts where Hazel Motes is talking about the Church Without Christ. It's just one paragraph where everything's all the the doctrine is fully laid out there. I'm going to read it to you and you can react to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the church without Christ is that church where the blind don't see and the lame don't walk and what's dead stays that way. There was no fall because there was nothing to fall from and no redemption because there was no fall and no judgment because there wasn't the first two. There are all kinds of truth, your truth and somebody else's, but behind all of them, there's only one truth and that is that there is no truth. You needn't look at the sky because it's not going to open up and show no place behind it. You needn't search for any hole in the ground to look through into somewhere else. You can't go neither forwards nor backwards into your daddy's time nor your children's if you have them. In yourself right now is the only place you've got. Jesus was a liar. That's all that matters. And what what the world needs is a new Jesus whose blood isn't fouled with redemption and nobody has to believe in. Mm. In a sense, he's calling there for a kind of innocence, 
but he's constantly wrestling with the cost of that innocence. Basically, if I say there is no guilt, there is no such thing as sin, I have to get rid of a category that I need to make sense of life. So for instance, you, then you live in a world where it's not a sin, for example, to murder people. <laughs> and if it's not a sin to murder people, um, then your personal experience of the world, which is always <clears throat> a priori moral, is negated in favor of this other world that exists in your head and that you choose to believe in over and against the evidence of your senses, because the evidence of our senses is a world where good and evil exist. I mean, that's just, there's just no way to live your life without believing in those things. Um, let's say you were to come upon a murder, a ritual murder. Well, you would react to it with disgust and revulsion if you're a sane person. Um, but then it might be explained to you that uh, this particular slow, torturous murder is actually consensual or somehow um, accepted in the culture where it's being performed. Mm -hmm. um, well, you can you can accept that intellectual argument, but you can never get rid of the immediate experience of horror, uh, which is inseparable in my mind from the idea of sin. So when when I read the word sin in the scriptures or in the in, in some theologians work, what I hear is horror. The fact that, that, that there is real horror in this world. And he can't let go of that. He can't believe that we're all just little sweet little roses. Um, so I kind of sympathize with him at that point when he rejects that easy new agey kind of interpretation of what he's getting at. True. You actually, I think your allusion to some kind of ritual murder and then the thought experiment like, oh, but what if you find out that it was um, consensual? That actually happened. There's a case in West Germany. Did you hear about this? Uh, maybe. I'm not sure. Armin Mews? Mews? Mives? Anyway. Uh, yeah, I'm looking at the Wikipedia page. Armin Mives, I'm just going to go with that pronunciation, is a German former computer repair technician who achieved international notoriety by killing and eating a voluntary oh, yeah. victim whom he had found via the internet. After Mivas and the victim jointly attempted to eat the victim's severed penis, Mivas killed his victim and proceeded to eat a large amount of his flesh. Over many months. Yeah, I've read that. Yeah. And let's see, he was convicted of manslaughter at first and, and sentenced to eight-year in prison. And then the year after, a German court ordered a retrial, arguing that he should have been convicted of murder because he killed for sexual gratification, a motive proved by his having videotaped the crime. Jesus fucking Christ. I don't know that. Jesus. Um, that is the kind of thing that makes you really glad that you didn't have to serve on that jury. Your God. You have to watch that fucking video. Can you imagine? Oh, no, no. So, yeah, after his retrial, psychologists stated that Mivas could reoffend and still had fantasies about devouring the flesh of young people. Uh, in 2006, a court in Frankfurt convicted Mivas of murder and sentenced him to life imprisonment. Probably just as well. And, you know, actually, that case came up in a really interesting book that I read recently by Jonathan Haidt. Hmm, yeah. Um, called. The Righteous Mind, which I strongly recommend, even though some of the latter chapters are not as much my cup of tea. Basically, he develops this idea of morality, 
people have different almost morality receptors analogous with flavor receptors. And it's a very interesting theory, but he uses that example. He talks about a, a kind of weird we haven't talked about in this show, which is the acronym weird. Do you know what that stands for? No. Western, educated, uh, industrialized, rich, and democratic. Okay. <laughs> and, and those are five attributes which form the acronym WEIRD uh, that describe nations like Canada, like the United States, Northern Europe, uh, and you know, Western Europe generally. So basically, the countries that constitute the sphere of the modern. Mm -hmm. And one of the points he makes is that morality in WEIRD countries... People who are socialized or are brought up to that way of thinking have a lot of cognitive dissonance around certain kind of moral problems. Like he, he, he talks about like doing research when he's a graduate student and he would talk to other kids on his college campus and ask them questions like, okay, imagine that you buy a chicken and then you fuck the chicken and then you eat it. Or imagine somebody does that. Sorry, we, this is a this is possibly an unpleasant topic. <laughs> yeah. He said he said that like when he would go to more blue collar communities that were next to the college campus, people would look at him like he was fucking crazy. Like he would say like because the question is did that person do anything wrong? Yeah. And you know, people who were not as fully assimilated to the the church of the modern would be like, of course he did something wrong. That's fucking disgusting. Yeah. Right. Whereas the kids on the college campus would realize there's something kind of queasy about that, that it feels wrong. It has a, like a bad mouthfeel. But their morality basically has been restricted to one particular kind of taste receptor which is care, what he calls care slash harm. Right. So are you harming the chicken? So from that point of view, it's a cunningly framed question because, well, if the chicken's already dead, if it's a supermarket chicken, and if you're just going to eat it, what difference could it possibly make? But he said he, what he noticed is that people in the weird morality, W-E-I-R-D, they would go to tortured lengths to try and find some way that the guy who, who bought, fucked, and ate the chicken um, was actually in some way harming the chicken. Right. And it, would, and it would get like really implausible. But the problem is the only, you know, when it, all you have is a hammer, everything is a nail. If the only argument you have for doing something morally wrong is that you hurt somebody or you lack or you've failed to show care for somebody, then what will happen is you will know in your heart of hearts, there's something fucked up about that guy who fucked the chicken and then ate it. But you have no Just vocabulary as, for it. You but cannot. you have no vocabulary for it. Yeah. And then he used as an even more pointed example, this case of Mivas, uh, Mivas, whatever. Yeah. That fucking guy, the cannibal. Yeah. Like he's like, it was fully, it was fully consensual. You know, even as the guy, his victim was dying, he was into it. That was like his thing. And yet there's this sort of sense. You can even see on the level of the German legal machinery at first not being able to think of anything to convict him of except manslaughter. And then going back and being like, no, it's, it's wrong. Right. I would be very interested to know that's, the details of how they relitigated that case. That's a very interesting 
point you're bringing up. The thing is that we're talking about the cost of modern thinking. It has a high cost. G.K. Chesterton in Orthodoxy talks about this. It's like you can do away with the unsavory part of moral judgment by saying there is no morality. We're all clean. We're all innocent deep down. But the cost of doing that means precisely that, that we lose the vocabulary to discuss moral issues altogether, obviously. And, mm -hmm. um, but then that might sound tautological, because if you're going to get rid of morality, then why discuss morality? Well, okay, then let's live that way. Let's try that out. Really? Yeah. Let's let's really live without morality. <laughs> and um, <laughs> because in that, you first. <laughs> yeah. The, the thing is that they were it was fully consensual, as you say. So what argument do you have from a modern perspective against it? You you don't have any. All you all you're doing really by being a, setting yourself against it or by objecting to it is showing your own lack of open mindedness. You know. Ultimately, you yeah. should accept it. This is what they wanted. And um, but so so that's an interesting thing. Is that a more enlightened point of view or is it more enlightened to react like those blue collar people did, which is just to see plainly to, to that feeling of disgust that we feel instinctively in front of something like like those examples you just described uh, is rooted in something transcendent, maybe. You know, yeah. that's what those people would say. It's just wrong. Um, that makes no sense from a scientific point of view. Because, yeah. you know, evolutionary theory tells us, well, our morality evolved for reasons. You yeah. know, there's a reason. It's not good to have sex with chickens because it'll spread diseases. That's the reason. <laughs> that's the yeah. reason why it's not good. Well, it's like, okay, well, what if I make sure the chicken's really healthy? Um, should that, and I'm wearing a condom. Yeah, and I'm wearing a condom. <laughs> God, we have to stop talking about this. But, uh, yeah. Well, it, you know, just in case people thought we were going to get a little too normal just talking about Jesus, <laughs> we have to throw in a little chicken fucking yeah, to make exactly, it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, to just sort of balance it out, you know. So let's go back to those tenets. I think that the philosophy he's describing is very much a kind of Nietzscheanism, right? Um, you're innocent. There is no judgment because there was no fall. There's no redemption. Um, you're, you're clean as you are, as he says at one part. I'm clean as I am. Um, and that does seem to be the modern take. But of course... And, and and a particularly important line, I preach that there are all kinds of truth, your truth and somebody else's, but behind all of them, there's only one truth, and that is that there's no truth, he called. No truth behind all truths is what I and this church preach. Right. Which, shit, man, he would just be completely at home in a modern day college campus. That's kind of, that's Nietzsche, right? Yeah, um, Exactly. Uh, until he was rehabilitated by certain other philosophers who tried to salvage something from, I mean, if you just take Nietzsche to the letter, that's what he's saying. And I, I would challenge anyone who would, some people argue that's not what he's doing, but that is what he's doing. It's very clear. Um, and sure. Well, what's, what's the, what's the, what's the price we're willing to pay for that? But you know, the thing is that I'm not unsympathetic to that view either, because like, you know, 
in Buddhism, in Mahayana Buddhism, there's a very useful idea of like the two truths, a kind of that two things are true simultaneously, you know, and it's the heart of the heart sutra. Form is emptiness and emptiness is form. You know, emptiness is that state of things just as they are entirely independent of human wishes, human volition, human egos, human wantings, human cravings, human aversions, things, you know, I'm talking into a microphone. That's always the example. This is a typical thing that philosophers do, right? They always talk about looking through windows and shit because that's what they're doing when they're writing their stuff. So I'm always using the microphone as an example. But like, you know, this microphone is a microphone that exists for me. My understanding of it, my sense of its form, it's how it looks, um, how it feels, you know, all of my perceptions. There's no such thing as a raw sense perception of this thing. It's all sculpted by the fact that I use this microphone for something. And then what is the microphone in itself? You know, the what is the thusness of the microphone or in Buddhist terms, uh, tathata? Um, you know, that is the emptiness side of the form is emptiness equation. And form is like the sense of form that our experience gives things. And yet, the argument, and you know, I don't feel like trying to break down why this might be plausible, but is that those two things are one in the same, uh, that there is a kind of a identity of those two principles, form and emptiness. So you're not negating form, saying, oh, form is all bullshit, you know, that all there is is the, the emptiness side, the, the, you know, the world without, you know, the world without Christ. Uh, from this point of view, maybe Christ becomes a figure for form itself, for things having some kind of fundamental sense of meaning or or shape to us. Um, you're not negating that. Uh, How are you not negating that? Well, it gets all mystical and difficult to talk about, doesn't it? The saying that form is emptiness and emptiness is form. Like I said, I don't feel like trying to get into it. But suffice it to say, this is an issue that Buddhism... Uh, deals with constantly is that it is sort of saying that from a certain point of view, uh, there are all kinds of truth, your truth and somebody else's, but behind all of them is the truth is one truth. And there, that is that there's no truth as Hazel Moat says, it says that, but it also says the opposite that behind all of those truths there, you know, all of those truths are true like they are all all of those different form all of those things are forms and all and those things you can't wave them away they exist they're real right uh and and they are worthy of our care and protection like i think one problem with uh zen practice uh is uh, or maybe buddhist practice generally is that people get into it. And I think there is a stage that people go through where they were like, Hey, this licenses everything. Like, you know, nothing is, nothing is true. Everything is permitted. There's a kind of, um, a hedonism that that could potentially, or nihilism that that could unlock. And, uh, I think you see aspects of that and they kind of the beat generation flirtation with Buddhism or, or misunderstandings perhaps, but it, you know, you, I mean, the, the, the Zen Buddhist answer to everything is, well, you got to sit with that for a little while longer, right? Mm. As you realize that actually 
the forms of things matter a great deal. Otherwise, you wouldn't have the precepts. You wouldn't take the precepts when you become an official Zen Buddhist, when you take Jukai. Um, then the forms of conduct, form, forms of moral life that are enshrined in those precepts and in, in, indeed in the Buddhist teachings, uh, then those would be meaningless. They would have no point, but they do have a point. They pertain very much to our human life. But mm -hmm. then at the same time, we are also trying to keep our eye on this other truth, which is the truth of emptiness, which goes beyond our human life. Right. But both are equally true. And in fact, they're interdependent in a way that, like I said, I don't feel like trying to say why that is. Right. Um, I find myself falling back on this M cliche. Well, you just need to bet. You just need to meditate a lot, you know. Right. Just need to do a lot of zazen. Then it'll kind of make sense. But suffice it to say, the fact that that mechanism exists at the heart of Mahayana Buddhism, just to show you that that was like, <laughs> it exists, I think, because it had to, because at some point there was this sort of Nietzschean moment, this Nietzschean insight. We're like, well, shit, everything's relative. Yeah. But then you can't stop there. There has to be some kind of development on that, or it just kind of uh, collapses in on itself. Is the point where it needs to get beyond that nihilism is that moment a kind of shrinking back from the actual content of the message or is that like really shrinking back from the abyss kind of it feels that way to me because i don't know what you could build on top of that once you've seen that i don't know how well you could say it's you need to meditate in which case well okay yeah you need to go to venus to understand what i'm talking about or you know you could always say that but <laughs> if you if you're going to say something after that it needs to without negating that insight i don't understand how that can happen without shrinking back from it um because once you've made that move then it doesn't matter what you say next it just doesn't, doesn't matter, matter whether it's a shrinking back or a fully embracing and then somehow finding yourself on the other side, because that's what happens to Hazel Motes. He never shrinks back from no. his ideas. He just ends up kind of going through the looking glass and he ends up and I'm OK. So, like, we've done a shit job of actually saying what the plot of this book is, Um Hazel Motes sets up to be a kind of anti-preacher, goes to this city in Tennessee, Talkingham, and sets up as an itinerant preacher of the church without Christ. He meets various odd people like this guy who tries to preach on his behalf. He meets someone else who we haven't talked about at all, who's the dude who work, works at the zoo. zoo. What's his name? Enoch. Enoch. Yeah, that's right. You know, and then falls in with the Hawks, with Asa Hawks and Sabbath Hawks, who he ends up in a kind of a relationship with, even though he doesn't really like her very much. Um, so he has various adventures, but really the story is very plain. He goes to this city and he sets up a mission and his mission fails at a certain point. He gives up and he just retreats to his rooming house. And he, he commits lives. a murder. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, how could I forget that? He commits a murder, which is this guy who's like a substitute for him. Yeah. Hazel Motes, like this other, this um, uh, Hoover Schultz eventually gets sick of Hazel Motes trying to uh, shoo him off. And so he just gets himself a different Hazel Motes, a doppelganger, a guy who looks just like him. It's just this homeless guy he found. <laughs> he, yeah. And uh, dresses and, him up. Uh, 
the dresses same. him up like Hazel Motes, and Hazel Motes eventually runs him down with a car. Yeah. Unobserved. But it's like that happens, and then he tries to leave the town, and a highway patrolman like pushes his car into a into a culvert, like destroys the car off a cliff, that, yeah. off a cliff, yeah. And seems that seems to break something in him. But you know, the thing is that there's not a lot of interiority in this novel, to say the least. Uh, it's almost sort of like. Um, it's like a lot of existentialist fiction where like characters are just narrated from the outside. You never get the sense of what their inner life is or whether they even have one. Well, she, she does describe quite a bit of, a, of his thoughts and inner states, but always from a never from a kind of first person perspective. She'll she'll talk about memories he has or feelings. he Like it's true. Yeah. And yet somehow you never, you know, Hazel Mose yeah. just remains a cipher. You never right. arrive at a sense of an interior. That's totally true. Which, which is maybe what those eyes, those those endless black shafts of his empty eye sockets, maybe something that that implies at the end. But I just have, um, I want to bring it back to what you just said. Like, you know, after these things happens, he gives up preaching. He retreats to his rooming house. He never talks to anybody. He never does anything except he goes for long, long walks. And his landlady at first thinks he's a nut. And sort of intrigues to get him committed to an insane asylum and take all his money. But then she kind of falls in love with him and she starts learning more about him and realizes like he sleeps with barbed wire twined around his torso. Like she finds spots of blood in his bedding and she realizes because he sleeps wrapped up in barbed wire and that he puts little rocks and pieces of broken glass in his shoes. And that's the that's why he goes for these long walks is so that he can walk on broken glass and gravel. And as I mentioned before, he blinds himself, and that's what sets off this last stage of his life, where he lives a life of... lives a life of a renunciate, like not just a Christian ascetic, but the most violent, um, self-abasing kind of ascetic. Um, His landlady says to him, this is towards the end, well, it's not normal. It's like one of them gory stories. It's something that people have quit doing, like boiling in oil or being a saint or walling up cats, she said, which is, by the way, very funny. Yeah. There's no reason for it. People quit doing it. They ain't quit doing it as long as I'm doing it, he said. People have quit doing it, she repeated. What do you do it for? I'm not clean, he said. Right. Which is a contradiction of what he said earlier when he said, I'm clean just as I am. Now he's, I'm not clean. And, and of you course, don't yeah. quite know whether it's because he just floundered upon the contradictions of his position or whether it's having committed this crime, murdering this homeless guy who is impersonating him or what. As I say, we don't get an insight into his motivation. Maybe it's truest to say we don't get an insight into his motivations. We get an insight into some of the things he experienced when he's younger, but we don't know why he does what he does. And yet, so somehow there's this enantiodromia whereby trying to be as Nietzschean nihilist, rather than shrinking back from the abyss, he just goes all the way into it and emerges on the other side, a holy man. Like his landlady keeps finding dollar bills in his trash. And she's like, well, you're throwing out money? And he's like, well, I didn't need that money. And that was what I had left over. He lives on just like garbage food, like almost on nothing. And he just throws away money. It has no value to him. Somehow he becomes this arch ascetic. That's not shrinking back from the abyss. That's like going through the abyss and ending up on the other side in some like profoundly weird territory. And that to me is a more interesting outcome. Absolutely. 
then if yeah you're 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 totally right there's that moment in the the passion right where jesus is on the cross he's pretty much in the worst situation anybody could be in he's literally nailed to a post dying and he says father why have you forsaken me and gk chesterton says this is the only instance we have in all of mythology where a god becomes an atheist right yeah uh, and that's great and so the, there's the abyss. I mean, the, the the whole thing about the Jesus story is that God did not save him. And in a way, that's kind of the message, <laughs> you know, it's that, oh, yes, this yeah. whole modern take on nothing is looking out for us. There's no in uh, uh, there's no ultimate meaning. That's kind of the content of the message. You have to go through that. And it's, you know, uh, John of the Cross, you know, um, Dark Knight of the Soul. You go through yeah. the abyss yep. and you come up the other exactly. the other side. And I think it's exactly the same technology that you find in Buddhism. It's the same mystical yeah. technology. Um, yeah. It's just that uh, uh, the, the politics make it hard for us to see Christianity in the same light. Exactly. Buddhism, ha yeah. Buddhism has great PR in the West right now. <laughs> it does. People yeah. just have this idea that Buddhists are like serene and peaceful have and good nice vibes. And good vibes. Yeah, don't don't talk about chicken fucking constantly. Whereas whereas if I tell people I'm a Catholic, they just I don't know what they're thinking. I know it's not good in most cases. Um, yeah. So well, religion, man. I mean, f fuck. You know, there's fascist Buddhists in Myanmar. Yeah. You know, Buddhist fascism is a thing. Most people don't know that. I always feel yeah. like telling people that. You know. Buddhists are shit people just like everybody else because they're people. Japan under Hirohito was definitely, in the Second World War, was definitely a fascist state, supported unanimously by the Zen establishment. There's this guy, Daniel Ingram, who wrote this interesting book. I wonder if we'll talk about it on the show, Mastering the Core Teachings of the Buddha. Mm -hmm. um, but he has this great line in it where he talks about uh, dealing with difficult people in Dharma scenes. And he's like, just keep in mind... All religions are screwed up because all religions have people in them. Right. And which I was like, words of wisdom, bro. Yeah. I, well, I like that, you know? Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a nice way. It's a validation of an original sin anyways. It's like, it doesn't matter who you are. If you're human, you're people and there'll Can be problems. Can we talk about original sin for a second? Sure. G.K. Chesterton in uh, Orthodoxy says that the original sin is the one thing that people think is the first thing they refute. So you'll have all kinds of modern Christian churches like the United Church here in Canada. I don't know if it exists in the US, but very progressive liberal church. Actually, I don't want to single them out. I don't know what their take is on this, but many uh, uh, modern forms of Christianity denominations reject the idea of original sin yeah. um, and or at least ignore it. Don't talk about it. But for G.K. Chesterton, it's like that's the one part, you know, <laughs> You can you know, objectively it's true. objectively true. Like everybody is, is, it depends how you want to define sin. Like sin is missing the mark, right? That's literal, the literal meaning. Uh, well, every human misses the mark. Does, is every, is, you know, people who claim that we're fundamentally innocent. I, I wonder if they, those people would actually tell me that they are, they have nothing they've ever done that they regret, that they've never screwed up. That everything they've done is perfect. They never hurt somebody. They never hurt somebody. And then there's nothing wrong if they did. It wasn't, there's no, there's no uh, uh, atoning for that. It's just, we're innocent. It just doesn't stand up. It's not a doctrine that I can, 
even make sense of. So original sin to me is the, the fundamental truth of human life. And it's just exactly the same thing as the, that you find in Buddhism. With, yeah, you uh, don't need the framing of it as original sin. You could say it's suffering, it's dukkha. Yeah. You know, but either way, however you frame it, and I mean, like the theology does matter. It does matter whether you frame it one way or another. I'm not saying all religions are really one or whatever, no, but no, like, no. but nevertheless, to me, any religion worth its salt has got to acknowledge that there's something fucked up about people. Right. That there's something and it, something and fucked up not, about you. Yes, it, you know, it's, it's and the fucked upness of other people also pertains to you. Exactly, because one of the things people do to ignore religion or to 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 use it is they'll read the scriptures, whether it's Buddhist or Muslim or whatever, and they'll use or Christian, and they'll use it to judge other people. And but those. Those writings should apply. They're kind of for you, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Like, like you, you don't read a novel thinking, "Oh, what would this person think of this?" Or what would this? But you, you're reacting to it, and it's a one-on-one -on -one thing. And if you read these texts as a one-on-one -on -one thing, you'll notice that all the judging and brimstone and, and stuff that's going on in these texts kind of applies to you personally. It's like if it's not about you, then you're just you're just using it to. Um, that's when you politicize it. That's when you're making it about other people and not you. Mm -hmm. Let me tell you what I think is the best thing about the doctrine of original sin. People think, and doubtless for very good reasons, I wasn't raised a Catholic, but I know a lot of people who are raised Catholic who carry a burden of guilt that they're always trying to, to get rid of, like people who have undergone certain pitiless forms of Catholic schooling, um, right. for example, often feel that original sin should be got rid of because it's a pitiless doctrine, that's a cruel doctrine, that you're telling people that they're shit from the beginning. You're telling these little kids like you're a shitty person and, uh, you know, then you have this guilt in you. You feel like a shitty person. You feel stained like Hazel Motes does for the rest of your life. Um, and you keep trying to drop that burden. Right. 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 Well, you that's know, a good point. You, you know, Twitter, though, has made me realize that original sin is actually a kindness. Because if you say, I'm a shitty person and so is everybody else because there's this worm in the apple, there's this rottenness, it's not contingent on me or you or stuff that you do or stuff that I could do or some idea like, well, if you acted different, then the worm wouldn't be in the apple. No, you say it's, you, it's a radical statement that the worm is always already in the apple. Right. Nothing, nothing yeah. you could do about it. And once you say that, then forgiveness is possible. Then there's a basis for forgiveness because we all share in this sort of like broken condition. Exactly. Yeah. But what you see in Twitter is this endless, uh, God, to use a Buddhist term for it, is the Asura realm, is it the realm of wrathful spirits, right? If you're thinking of the bardos. It is totally the Asura realm and war without end, endless fighting and, you know, just God, it's just like every time you open up Twitter, there's just always a, a, a flood tide of rage, of anger, raw, hot, unassuageable, unappeasable anger um, and anger that only feeds itself because and I, and I realize this actually this is not my original thought, Helen, my brilliant wise wife said this is that 
there's no basis for forgiveness. There's always this idea, well, if you acted different, if you used different words, if you did something different, then you would be an acceptable person and I wouldn't be raging out about you, but you didn't. So now not, and there's no end to the amount of anger that you can then exhaust in this person. You did, you fucked up, you fucked up, you fucked up. And you will say that until like nothing will be enough until that person is destroyed utterly, is, is brought to nothing, is that the, they're, they're fired from their work and they're made an unperson in society. Nothing is enough. No punishment is enough for that person. The idea that there's a stop to it, that there's a point where you're like, okay, enough already. Right. That doesn't exist because we don't have any mutual basis for understanding our brokenness. You know, Zizek reverses uh, the famous Dostoevsky line, um, when God is dead, everything is permitted. Uh, Zizek says, well, we've had a hundred and some years of that now, and we know that's not true. We know it's precisely the opposite. When God is dead, nothing is permitted. Yeah. Because then the moral strictures proliferate. Every person becomes a little God. And the act of meeting out judgment, say on Twitter, is in itself, an exculp- uh, it's, it exculpates you from your own guilt yep. yeah it you're changing you, the subject you become innocent through accusing others yeah so i mean we people can judge for themselves you know where we've come to uh in the modern world by um abandoning some of these um some of this moral thinking and i'm not at all saying that the world was perfect before <laughs> modernity um and i'm not saying that there's a lot of thought that uh, there's a lot to think about and we have to 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 explore these things further but I think that what um, Flannery O'Connor is doing in this book, a lot like a lot of other Catholic writers of the 20th century, for example, Graham Greene, a lot of the decadence to um, we're Catholics, uh, is that they are reacting against modernity. That, that fundamentally, a lot of you know what drew a lot of these artists to the Catholic Church was that it was the last bastion of a pre-modern way of thinking. Um, it doesn't even need to be perfect. It doesn't even need to be right. It just needs to be saying no to that. Yeah. And um, and that's probably not the best reason to convert to a religion, but it's certainly understandable. reading um uh george santayana's book on beauty um recently and uh santayana was was uh he called himself an atheist catholic and i really like that uh sorry he called himself an aesthetic catholic and i really like that (laughs) it's a slight difference well actually atheist catholic (laughs) is the next step i think i would say i'm an atheist catholic but um so the Aesthetic Catholicism is because the aesthetics of, Christ, of of the Catholic Church to people who in that time were was uh, affirming something that they was disappearing from the world. It was maintaining something of uh, a kind of sacred space. And I think that she, that the book is very much. I mean, Flannery O'Connor's book is very much a kind of attack on modernism. It's an it's it's an and it's an attempt to engage with it on its own terms and to show its own innate falsity or its its insufficiency. And so one of the things that's really interesting when you read 
a wise blood is the, her choice of the way she describes things is very interesting. So her main character is a nihilist. So the world that the main character lives in is a nihilist world. Um, there's uh, people are described as body parts. Did you notice that? No, I didn't. So the first time he goes in to see um, uh, Leora Watts, the prostitute, he sees a big white knee. Uh, this is stuff that I got from, I, I actually listened to a lecture by Amy Hungerford from uh, Yale, truth, like full disclosure, where she breaks down some of the, just the structural and elements of the of the book and some of the tropes and shows some really cool things come to light. And one of the things is this, is that, is that the, the, the book is all body parts. At one part, um, I found my own examples in here. At one part we read, Enoch could see part of Hazel Motz's face watching the woman. What a strange way to write. It didn't, it didn't grin in return, but it kept on watching her, it being the face, hmm. as she padded over to a spot of sun almost directly under where they were sitting. A page later, he writes, uh, she writes, Hazel Motes' face might have been cut out from the side of a rock. Or, hmm. um, and there's another great part here. When the blind man opened the doors, a shaft of light fell on him and Hayes craned his neck to see him better. The child turned her head slowly as if it worked on a screw and watched his car pass. His face was so close to the glass that it looked like a paper face pasted there. So you're seeing uh, people are described as inanimate objects, mm. which is precisely what they are. Um, after the death of vitalism in biology, there's no essential difference between a toaster and a human or mm -hmm. a cat. We're all of the, of the same order. So she's describing a world that way. And people are always best, the best analogies for people are always with inanimate things. And people's body parts are cut apart because you're, you're in a purely imminent frame. You're only experiencing one thing at a time. You never experience a person. You experience a face and then you experience oh, a shoulder. You experience yeah, a hand. Like um yeah, one part where they were, I mentioned earlier when he sneaks into the carnival as a child and sees something there, um, he sneaks up and he sees all these men gathered around something and he pushes past them and then sees uh, they were looking down into a lowered place where something white was lying, squirming a little in a box lined with black cloth. For a second, he thought it was a skinned animal and then he saw it was a woman, you know, that people yeah. people are that you, you want to live in a nihilist world in a world with no in, in, if, to use Charles Taylor's term you want to live in a purely imminent frame well this is the world you live in it's not a world of people it's not a world of beings it's a world of things it's a world of chemicals and it needs to be described that way so strangely this book by a catholic writer is actually a nihilist a nihilist book it gives no evidence for what it's trying to, um, to ultimately what she would personally support. It's a full embrace of the abyss, just as Hazel Motes um, enacts. Well, it's interesting then because we're put in the position then as readers of being the ones who have to walk up to the abyss and then somehow through it. Right. Which always feels like kind of what the decadents were about. Yeah, I totally Deca agree. Yeah. Decadent art is 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 art that kind of makes you do that. Although I wouldn't have ever thought of this as a, a work of decadent fiction. It doesn't have the right atmosphere. No. But it's asking you to do something similar. There's something about it that is actually kind of disturbing. E even though it's funny as shit, it's still pretty disturbing. It 
people don't pay for their crimes in this book. There's, it's a world without justice. Mm-hmm. Um, even Hazel Motes commits murder and there's no consequence other than his own penitence. Um, it's a kind of a hellscape, eh, the setting. Did you notice that the first chapter he's in a train and it ends with him trying to get to sleep in the berth in the train and he can't get to sleep because he keeps thinking it's like a coffin and he's remembering his parents dying and all kinds of experiences he's had with death. And there's this porter on the train, a black man, Hazel Motes thinks he recognizes. And he, at one point he's like, I know you, you used to live, uh, you know, in, in my town. In this and the, town, And yeah. the guy's like, no, I'm from Chicago, I'm from Chicago. And this is a, a pattern that repeats elsewhere. The people in this novel are constantly feeling like they're familiar to one another. They're like, I remember you, I met you somewhere before. And they deny it, or it's never confirmed one way or the other. It's never cleared up. So they're almost like lost souls recognizing one another, but not knowing the original context where they might have known each other. So the porter on the train just tries to get away with him from Hazel Motes. And at the end, Hazel Motes is lying in, in his berth and he's having a panic attack. Um, and all of a sudden he wakes up and he notices that the porter happens to be standing right next to him in the sleeping car. And uh, Hazel Motes screams, I'm sick, he called. I can't be closed up in this thing. Get me out. The porter stood watching him and didn't move. Jesus, he said, Jesus, the porter didn't move. Jesus has been a long time gone, he said in a sour, triumphant voice. And then we enter the novel. That's the first chapter. So it's to me, it seems quite clear that the novel structures as a kind of descent into an inferno, into hell. Mm. Jesus been a long time gone. Right. But there, not- are, uh, but there are persistent, unconfirmed reports. Right. Well, everybody's talking about Jesus, but where he actually is or whether he's, he's still present at all is, I don't he's, know. He's, he's flitting through the trees. I mean, there's no... Ba- there, beckoning. There are no good people in this book. Um, everybody is kind of rotten. And um, even the landlady at the end, who's almost... In fact, she's a kind of saintly figure. She takes care of Hazel Motes. Uh, she, she falls in love with him. He's an invalid at that point, but she takes care of him but even she's described as being a selfish she's, person she's trying to get she's his a money. really selfish person yeah, she yeah. wants to marry him so she can get his army checks um it's it's a fantastic book it's such and i i want to we should talk a little bit about why it's on weird studies because i think we've talked a lot about religion and stuff and we've talked about you know we've made it weird in our own way but it is a is a very strange strange book and the one part for me that really that is really weird is the whole uh, story of Enoch, right? <laughs> the yes. other character who is, he's a kind of simpleton in a way. Yeah. He, he thinks he has wise blood, which means that his blood knows what tells him to do things, but he doesn't know why or what he's doing until he's doing them. So one part he's redecorating his whole apartment as a kind of sanctuary, but he doesn't know he's doing that. He's just following these immediate impulses. And she describes it as he's building, He's he does things the way a bird finds itself building a nest without having planned it. So mm-hmm. he's doing, and what he does is he goes into the museum near the zoo where he works and he steals a tiny little homunculus, like a shrunken human that's being kept there. Like uh, a mummy. Yeah, a little tiny little, you know, one foot long mummy. person. Yeah. He steals it and he wants to give it to Hazel Motes. He thinks that this thing that he's obsessed with, this little mummy is the new Jesus. And to me, it's like, well, there's the surface reading, which is like, she's giving us exactly what we want as moderns. This is the new Jesus, a shriveled up, 
tiny little homunculus, a little mummified human. That's what you worship now. But another level, it's it's it resonates strangely to me. I don't know that that touch is just. That's where, for me, the, the it's kind of the rift in the novel, where the novel gets really strange. It's that little creature that Enoch is obsessed with and wants to steal for Hazel Motes. What, what were your thoughts on that? Um, there's the ambiguity of what happens when they actually get to the glass case. So, like, you know, uh, Enoch really has to drag Hazel Motes kicking and screaming to the museum where this little homunculus is. And Hazelmoats just doesn't give a shit. He's very single-minded. Um, he wants to know where the preacher and his daughter are, the hawks. Right. And he thinks that Enoch knows, and so he's pastoring Enoch. And Enoch's like, I'll tell you, but first you got to see this. Uh, and when they finally get there, you know, I think, uh, I'm not sure if I remember this right, but I think Hazel just gives up. He's just like, fuck it, you don't know. You don't know where they are. I'll find out myself. But at that moment, Enoch undergoes a kind of a moment of ecstasy, and it's sort of ambiguous. He feels like he hears a sound, and it's not clear whether the sound comes from the homunculus or not. No, actually, it's Hazel Motes emits a sound, but Enoch knows the sound really came from the homunculus. Oh, yeah, that's and then, right. And then later on, when Enoch steals the homunculus, he's putting it in his little tabernacle he's made in this room. He's putting in this little... It's basically the part of a of a vanity where you put the, the, the... What do you call the slop jar? Like, basically, where you put your bowl of shit. That's where he puts the little <laughs> homunculus. And that's where he puts it. And he's, he's inlaid it with, like, gold gilt and stuff to make it nice. And he's put it in there. And at that moment, he's in there and he sneezes... But he thinks it's the thing that sneezed. Basically, yeah. the, the the little shrunken doll becomes the agent, the, the source of all real agency for Enoch. It is it is what is it acting through us. It is the real deal. It is the actual yeah. agency in the universe. We're just kind of puppets of this thing, this little shriveled up um, mummy. Which Hazel then destroys. Uh, Hazel and... What's her name? Sabbath. Sabbath, Sabbath, Sabbath Lily, Lily who, yeah. are, who have taken up together in a very, one gets a feeling very unhappy and uneasy menage. Um, yeah, they end up just destroying, destroying it. Or right. he, like. She uh, wants to keep it, it as a baby. She wants to make it, she, she wants them to, to pretend it's their baby. That's right. And, and he grabs and, it and chucks it on the wall. And just, and it breaks and it just dissolves in a puff of dust. Right. Um, and. That's the end of Hazel and Enoch having anything to do with one another. But there's an important second episode involving Enoch, which mm. I think originally started life as just a story. I think it's called Enoch and the Gorilla or something like that, which she incorporated into the novel. And it has a little bit of the feel of a standalone set piece, but it's great. And it does link up with this more general sense that you just articulated of Enoch as somebody who fetishizes objects. Like he's somebody who relates to reality on the level of what we modern Westerners call fetishism, right? Seeing the numinous power in objects like this little homunculus. Um, and his focus shifts away from the homunculus after it's destroyed to a gorilla. A fake gorilla. <laughs> 
as it turns out, a fake gorilla. We don't know this at first, but like, it's like a uh, creature that stars in some jungle movie, and they advertise in the paper that this gorilla is going to appear at like in a movie house, and so Enoch. His wise blood is telling him he has to meet the gorilla, that this is important somehow. And so he's standing, I mean, he's this 18-year-old guy, he's this young man standing in line with a bunch of children who are all like solemnly shaking hands with the gorilla. And um, he gets up to the gorilla and realizes it's actually a guy in a gorilla suit. What does he say? So here it is. He's standing in front of the gorilla. He says, for a second, he only stood there clasping it, clasping the hand of the gorilla. Then he began to stammer. My name is Enoch Emery, he mumbled. I attended the Rodmill Boys Bible Academy. I work at the city zoo. I've seen two of your pictures. I'm only 18 years old, but I already work for the city. My daddy made me come. And his voice cracked. The star leaned slightly forward and a change came in his eyes. An ugly pair of human ones moved closer and squinted at Enoch from behind the celluloid pair. You go to hell, a surly voice inside the ape suit said, low but distinctly, and the hand was jerked away. That's <laughs> so contemptuous. <laughs> but what he does, what he ends up doing is he ends up stealing the gorilla suit and going off into the woods. And it's and implied he does violence to the guy who has the gorilla suit. The guy in the gorilla suit stabs him with like a sharpened umbrella handle or something. Oh, I can't remember that detail. Weird. But uh, it's it's yeah. just mentioned if it is. Yeah, it's not a big yeah. scene. It's and then, alluded to, not shown. And then he, uh, he removes his clothes and puts on the gorilla suit. And then <laughs> she has this really funny line. No gorilla in existence, whether in the jungles of Africa or California or in New York City in the finest apartment in the world, <laughs> was happier, <laughs> was happier at that moment than this one whose God had finally rewarded it. And then he begins to haunt people, right? He, he, a woman, uh, a man and woman sitting close together on a rock just off the highway were looking across an open stretch of valley at a view of the city in the distance, and they didn't see the shaggy figure approaching. Remember now the ragged figure moving from tree to tree. That, that's how she describes mm. Christ. The smokestacks and square tops of buildings made a black, uneven wall against the lighter sky. And here and there, a steeple cut a sharp wedge out of a cloud. The young man turned his neck just in time to see the gorilla standing a few feet away, hideous and black, with its hands extended. He eased his arm from around the woman and disappeared silently into the woods. He <laughs> just abandons her. <laughs> she, she, as soon as she turned her eyes, fled screaming down the highway. The gorilla stood as though surprised, and presently its arm fell to its side. It sat down on the rock where they had been sitting and stared over the valley at the uneven skyline of the city. So, I don't know. Is that success? <laughs> that's, such a great, that's such a great end to Enoch's story. Enoch's story. story. Yeah, that's the end for Enoch. But... And I don't know what to really make of that. There's so much in this book. Um, I feel like that line that his God had finally rewarded him right. is kind of important. Like he's, he's looking for a kind of transcendence and he gets it. I mean, it's weird. It's wearing a gorilla suit, but that's what his wise blood has been calling for. And that's how it is satisfied. Actually, that's <laughs> when you think of it, it actually makes sense. He and... Hazel, both are on a track to some kind of spiritual destination, but their tracks are quite different. They proceed along different principles. That's true. Enoch is, as I say, he's finding the imminence of grace in things. Mm -hmm. 
I you think know what I mean? That, yeah, that's the positive reading. I mean, a, a negative reading would be that he actually does end up developing or consummating the religion of the modern by equating huh. equating himself with an ape, which is the best we oh, can yeah. aspi- which is the best you can aspire to be in a purely Darwinian materialist universe. The best thing yeah. you can hope to be is an ape, is a primate, <laughs> is yeah. a primate, and so he gets it, and then. He's fulfilled, and it's not—it's not God rewards him; it's his God, right? In other words, the little homunculus. I don't know. I don't know if that's just a didactic move on her part to kind of make fun of Darwinian, kind of like the. the, the, oh, the I the confess, sp- it had not occurred to me until this very moment. But maybe not. I prefer your reading. Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also follow us on Twitter or support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening. <laughs>